millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Pod bless everybody. I'm your host of OPP, Corey Cambridge. And before we get started with this amazing episode, I want to tell you about my other show, Silent Giants. Silent Giants is a podcast that highlights the superstars behind the scenes of popular culture. Ever wondered who made the MTV logo? Did you know the person who wrote Earth, Wind & Fire's hit song September? Also wrote the theme song for the hit 90s TV show Friends? On Silent Giants, we learn more about these amazing people and dig deep to learn more about their most famous works. Be sure to check out Silent Giants on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Now, let me introduce you to our special guest of OPP. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball, host of Milk Street Radio, and this is OPP. God bless everybody and welcome back to another episode of OPP, America's number one podcast discovery platform that highlights your favorite podcasters and the dope shows they created. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Our special guest this episode is American chef Christopher Kimball, host of the amazing podcast, Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. On Milk Street Radio, Christopher travels to discover how food and cooking are changing the lives and cultures of people around the world. In this interview, we get to learn more about Christopher. I get to ask him what every adult should have in their kitchen. We get his podcaster's picks. And of course, we get into his dope show, Milk Street Radio. So, on to our exclusive interview with Christopher Kimball. What's going on, Christopher? Top of the morning to you, my man. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it's early, but I think it's going to be a good one. Now, I know you live in Boston, but I was doing some research on you and saw that you grew up in Westchester and you went to Columbia. So are you not a Yankees fan? Uh, oh, gee, that's, thanks a lot for that one. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I grew up being a Yankees fan. I used to go to Yankee Stadium in the 50s. I saw, uh, you know, Roger Maris, Mickey Mantle, all those people. Uh, I remember we used to sit, you know, right behind uh, home base sometimes. It was great. But then I moved to Boston uh, in 91, and uh, I very quickly uh, became a Red Sox fan. Fenway Park is just extraordinary. It's so small and intimate, and uh, so I'm a huge Red Sox fan now. Well, it's also easier to make friends. Make friends? Uh, Yeah, I mean, Boston's, um, I'd say New York actually is a friendlier town than Boston. Uh, New York, people just come right up to you and say whatever it's on their mind. I think Boston's a little little cooler, uh, a little harder to get to know people here. I, I, I'm still very uh, very high in New York. I love New York. Well, well the, the move to being a Red Sox fan was just a smarter move <laughs> as far as making friends. It, that's true. Uh, it, well, first of all, I, I know many times I've been at Fenway and uh, some idiot Yankees fan is sitting there with his hat on and everything and they always manage to get security to sort of <laughs> show them out of the, outside the park. So I, I don't know why they still do that. They're not very smart. Uh, how'd you enjoy your uh, your college experience at Columbia? 
Uh, it was a tough time for Columbia. I got there in the fall of 69. Um, you know, they just had the big revolution, quote unquote, in 68, where they took over the administration building. Um, I think two or three out of the four years, there were no finals because we had uh, demonstrations. Um, the police were showing up on campus for the demonstrations. Uh, so it was a, it was a hard time. Uh, I think the college was under a lot of attack because it was causing so many difficulties for the rest of the university. Um, so I enjoyed it, but I, I, it was a tense, I think it was probably the worst years for Columbia. And, and now it's beautiful. And, uh, you know, that whole area, uh, near the library, et cetera, was dirt, you know, grass never grew there. Now it's absolutely gorgeous and everything's been redone. And, uh, I think going to Columbia today is probably a better experience than back in 69. Yeah. Could, could you explain a little bit more about, about that revolution? I, I'm not aware of what happened at Columbia back in the day. What, what is the situation you're speaking of specifically? Well, it, it was anti-war, of course. Uh, I was very much part of that movement. Uh, Mark Rudd at SDS was there. Uh, it was a real hotbed. Uh, and actually, I was uh, in one evening, there was a big protest. The police came on campus and uh, I was standing on top of the student union building and uh, I looked behind me and there was a student with a Molotov cocktail uh, and a lighter and he was about to light it and throw it off. I, I talked him out of it. I thought that would be a, just a really bad idea, but that's kind of what went on. So, you know, it was the time of uh, Fillmore East, you know, uh, going down to Grateful Dead concerts and everybody else at the time, anti-war uh, it was just a, it was a difficult period, uh, cause it was all tied up in the war. Uh, so, you know, it, it was not easy. Let me put it that way. Uh, was being a culinary artist, a part of your career path at that time? No, um, I started cooking when I was eight or nine, but uh, not that I was, uh, an art major, actually primitive art, oddly enough. So I spent a lot of time down at the uh, museum of natural history on Wednesday afternoons going through their collections. Uh, and, quickly figured out that uh, a career in a museum was not what I wanted to do. Uh, so I spent a couple years in publishing after college and then uh, eventually started uh, Cook's Magazine. I started working on it in 1979, about six years after graduating from college. So uh, I figured it out pretty quickly, but um, the, 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 an academic life was not, I was just not cut out for that. So you mentioned that uh, that your love for cooking came you know, when you were younger, when did you realize that you had maybe a knack or a talent for it? Um, I think I had a knack for asking questions nobody else wanted to ask. I remember taking classes. I, I, I was trained in French cooking originally. Uh, and I'd ask, you know, how much is the dash of salt? Uh, and the teacher would get furious at me. Uh, or I'd say, why do you have to heat, you know, milk to make a bechamel, which you don't. Um, so I, I discovered early on that the tenets of French cooking, you know, the assumptions one makes, you know, a lot of that stuff was old fashioned or not really appropriate for the home cook. So uh, early on, I, I got a, became very enthusiastic about what home cooks know, what they don't know, and how to translate what was essentially a professional, you know, restaurant uh, information to the home cook. Uh, so much of that cooking back in the 70s was really not appropriate for the home cook. For example, the knife techniques, uh, you know, a brunoise, et cetera, et cetera, all those very exacting techniques you learn at Cordon Bleu or some other place. Yeah, I had no place in the home kitchen because people's knife skills were not up to it. So I, I, early on, I figured out that 
no one was asking the questions and I, that's what I wanted to do. I wonder how did you make the transition from being a cook? Um, and I think for most people, and I'm thinking, you know, way back in the day, you're a chef, you're a culinary artist and you work primarily just in restaurants and you're in the back of the house or maybe you own a restaurant. How did you make the uh, decision to want to step into the world of media with, with your love for cooking? Well, I always, I was always in media. My first job out of, uh, out of Columbia was in publishing. Uh, and then in 75, I moved to Connecticut and was also essentially in media. So I've always been in media, not a restaurant. I've never worked in a restaurant. Uh, that's just insane. I mean, I know a lot of my friends are chefs and there's nothing I want to do less than uh, run a restaurant. It's just an incredibly difficult career path. It's hard with a family. Uh, there's a lot of alcohol and drugs, uh, a lot of repetition, you know, managing staff. Uh, it's just a very hard business. And uh, I would love the cooking, but I think the rest of it's pretty tough. So I've always preferred to be a teacher rather than a chef. I mean, Julia Child never liked the term the French chef, you know, her TV show. Uh, she always considered herself a cook. Uh, and I, I, I consider myself a cook, not a chef. So it, it was about teaching, and I've always been interested in teaching. So I, I don't think I've really made a, a career jump from one thing to the other. It's been pretty consistent. Um, tell me about America's Test Kitchen. Uh, you you co-founded that company. Please tell me more about it. Well, uh, that was started uh, – I mean, Cook's Magazine was started in 1980. Uh, I restarted the magazine in 1993 um, after I'd left at the end of the 80s. Um, and it was, you know, consistently uh, a publication to help explain to people how to cook uh, without all the travel and without all the other stuff, all the lifestyle. Uh, America's Test Kitchen uh, is the name of the television show uh, that we founded in 2000. Uh, at, at the time, public television uh, told us we couldn't use uh, the name of our magazine, uh, Cook's Magazine, as the uh, that's the name of the show. So we had to come up with a new name, which turned out to be fortuitous, to put it mildly. Uh, it was a better title. So America's Test Kitchen was really the, the TV show name that we started in 2000. And, uh, you know, the goal was to give people what they wanted. I think uh, the food world editors sort of talk to themselves, right? And they, they do stories that are of interest to themselves, but they're traveling around the world and they have certain interests. We were, we were really trying to appeal to people in their homes the way they really cook. Uh, so we, we stuck to basics, you know, and that was a great formula because people didn't know how to make a pie dough or they didn't understand the best way to make a stew or how to chop an onion. And so we, we focused on, on really more basic American recipes. And that was that's the basis for that that approach, which was very successful. So, you know, Christopher, I am a I am a millenni millennial. I'm a part of the millennial generation. Um, you know, I'm just stepping into to my adultness, my my grown manness. And uh, I guess there's no better person to ask this question besides Christopher Kimball, now that I have you uh, here for the interview. What are, what are some essential things that you think every grown man or every grown woman uh, should have in their kitchen? Well, I, I, think, I think simplicity is really the key. Um, you know, as I travel around the world and visit people in their home kitchens, I'm always impressed by the fact uh, that they can create fabulous food without a lot of cookware, without fancy kitchens, uh, without a thousand ingredients. Uh, so simplicity is really key. So the things I would suggest are, first of all, 
25 recipes. That's all. Uh, pick recipes from different cultures, whatever you want. Uh, you know, steaming, broiling, grilling, baking, roasting, stewing, uh, rice, grains, vegetables, meat. Pick pick 25 recipes that are really going to cover the bases for you and get do them so well and so often you don't need the recipes anymore. That is by far the best way to become a good cook. Just you, you just know them by heart. Uh, secondly, the cookware, you know, simple, a 12-inch skillet. Uh, you need a uh, Dutch oven of some kind and, and a, and a uh, saucepan. That's all. Uh, a really good knife. I'm a big fan of Japanese-style knives, which are thinner and great for vegetables. So maybe a couple of knives, a European and a Japanese knife. A knife sharpener, a good cutting board, uh, you know, uh, measuring cups and spoons, a couple of things. But you don't really need a lot of stuff. What you need is an understanding of core recipes and just keep practicing those recipes. And that, that'll, if you do that in six months, you'll be a better cook than 95% of the people uh, you know. Um, Christopher, one thing about you and your profession and your life is that, you know, today we're living in the era where, you know, everyone kind of has their own, you know, micro brand or major brand, right? Because of Instagram, because of social media, because of the internet, you can have your own website, you could sell things. Um, but you started getting into the world of media, you know, way back in the day and building your own brand around yourself around cooking. Uh, what are the skills needed to take your love for cooking or even your love for another, um, your love for another talent? Um, and what skill sets do you need to be able to translate that uh, into media and to building a brand for yourself? I don't think you can. Uh, if you set out to build a brand for yourself as your goal, you probably fail. Um, and I like to use the example of Julia Child. You know, she never set out to create a, the Julia Child brand. She just was Julia Child. And she did what she was enthusiastic about and, and what she loved. So when I look around and see some of the success stories on YouTube, for example, it's almost always people who are doing what they love and that love and that expertise comes through. So if you just want to be famous or rich or successful or a media star, uh, you probably aren't going to get there if that's your goal. If your goal is to share with your audience something you love to do, you probably will get there. So it's about passion and it's about knowledge. Uh, you know, I, I, there's so many people on YouTube who have deep knowledge, for example, about Korean cooking, you know, uh, and that's an, it's infectious. You just watch them do things you don't know how to do. So it's love of the content and love of teaching that really gets you there. I, I'm not a big fan of people who design a way into a, a media brand because two years from now, they won't be there, right? I mean, there's going to be a lot of media stars who come and go. Very few people last, you know, go for the long run, the long haul. Uh, and that's the only way to get there is by doing something you believe in. And if you don't, you won't last. You know, I love going over to my friends' houses. That's like one of my favorite things to do to watch, watch football or watch basketball or watch baseball. Um, if I'm coming to Christopher Kimball's house to watch the Red Sox game, what, what are you, you going to prepare for your friends? Well, first of all, yeah, given given uh, my current career, uh, the TV is never on, so <clears throat> I almost never watch television. So, if I'm going to go to a Red Sox game, I would go to a Red Sox game once in a while. I wouldn't actually watch it on television unless it's you know they're playing in the <clears throat> in the in the final series. Um, 
uh, I just, you know, my, my feeling about cooking is what do you have in the kitchen? Uh, you know, you have a bunch of recipes that are sort of master recipes. You know, you, you cook rice and put something on it. You do a stir fry, you make a quick soup, uh, you flavor the soup with soy sauce or mirin or whatever, or ginger or garlic, and then you add whatever you have in your refrigerator. So uh, I, I'm really a big fan of simplicity. Uh, and I think over time, if you talk to cooks who've been around a while, th their cooking starts out complicated and gets simpler and simpler over the years. So, uh, you know, you could make uh, soba noodles or any kind of noodles with a simple, uh, with scallions, with a simple, uh, you know, soy-based sauce. That would be very simple to do, as I said, or do a stir fry or, you know, throw a cut of meat in, or throw chicken in a pot of water, simmer it for an hour or so. Take it out. You have chicken stock, uh, and then you have chicken, and you make a soup. You can make also a salad. You can make anything you want. So, uh, simplicity is really at the heart of it, and trying to cook with what you have as much as possible. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tell me about Milk, Milk Street and the founding of Milk Street. Well, Milk Street came out of my, uh, the way my cooking had changed years ago. Um, I, you know, I started traveling a lot. Uh, I, I got into other people's home kitchens. Uh, I realized that they knew more about cooking than I did. At least they knew a lot more about their style of cooking than I did. Uh, and in fact, it opened up a whole new world of thinking how you think about cooking. So classic American cooking, Fanny Farmers, based upon Northern Europe, mostly French cooking, uh, is perfectly appropriate for that part of the world. But if you're in Tunisia or Taipei or Oaxaca, you know, or Beirut, uh, the ingredients are different. The cooking techniques are different. You think about food differently. So that that was the basis of Milk Street was to say, look, home cooking is about to go through a massive revolution, as our restaurants did 20 years ago. Uh, people are going to change the way they cook. And so I would like to be part of that. Uh, and instead of just giving people what they want or say they want, give people just go one step more and say, you know, you can think of it that way, but you know, there's a chicken soup from Somalia that's actually pretty interesting. It's not complicated, but uh, it's got a little hot sauce on it and some crunchy vegetables. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a different way to think about chicken soup. So Milk Street was about changing the way people cook and leading people rather than just giving them what they already know they wanted. And that, that was the start of Milk Street. Uh, Christopher, let's get a quick break. When we get back, we're going to get into your podcast, Milk Street Radio. And Christopher, we're back. So Christopher, um, tell me, how did you first hear about the medium of podcasting? Um, well, I'm a huge podcast fan uh, because I do I drive back and forth to Vermont a lot, and um, it's I, I love podcasts because there's a deep dive into you know specific areas I love. Uh, you know, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. I love Fresh Air. I love a lot a lot of those podcasts. Um, and so I can, you know, the history of Rome, these kinds of things I love. Uh, and so I just started listening, uh, mostly in the car, uh, as I drive. And it was so much better than just listening to, uh, you know, what came over the radio or just listening to music. Uh, so 
it was part educational, but also there's a lot of really interesting people out there. Uh, and now they had a voice, you know. So I think podcasts are just an amazing uh, medium. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's no barrier to entry, which means anybody can do it, uh, which means people get a voice. And I think this is a particularly great medium for, for people to express you know, what they know and to attract a, you know, a vertical specialized audience. Uh, do you remember the first podcast that you got into and how you discovered it? Um, it was probably, uh, probably fresh air, I guess, you know, Terry Gross, uh, love her interview style. Um, she covers so many different topics. Um, that, that sort of, you know, is an easy one to get into. Uh, and then I started listening to, uh, to others as well, but I think that was the first one in, um, I, Dan Carlin's hardcore history is also one I really sort of, you know, <laughs> I'd listen to every single hour of his 15 hour podcast about a topic. Uh, because it it was such a deep dive. And I really like deep dives because uh, you can't get that anywhere else unless you read a book. Um, but did you know early on from listening to, to Fresh Air um, and those early podcasts that you were a fan of that you would want to join or or start your own podcast? Well, we really started a, broad, a radio show. You know, the, the podcast was a spinoff from the show itself. So I don't think we thought of ourselves as, <clears throat> I remember years ago, uh, starting a radio show. Uh, and, and the notion was, uh, you know, can you do a radio show about cooking since you can't really cook on radio? Um, and my answer was, yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff in and around the world of food and cooking that you can't do on a TV show. A TV show is about showing people how to cook a recipe for the most part. Uh, radio show is the opposite of that. It's, it's about the ideas and the people and the culture around food. So we thought that would make a great radio show. And then, of course, the podcast. The podcast is essentially the broadcast show. So uh, then over time, I realized that the podcast uh, became, uh, you know, in a way almost more important than the broadcast. Uh, it just it grew and grew and grew. And this was years ago. And so the podcast kind of took over for the broadcast in some ways. Although I have to say the broadcast is really important to us. Um, you know, ha having a show every week on the weekends and a bunch of different stations, I think, is is a different kind of experience, but is really critical to our success long term. So, you know, what does food tell you about the world, about people, about culture, about how things are changing? It's, it's an entry point. You know, it's a gateway to almost any topic. So on the TV show, I can't talk about Minoan cooking, you know, if whatever, uh, or South Korean cooking or Japanese cooking. I can't do that on a TV show. I can do that. Uh, more readily in a podcast uh, and talk to a whole bunch of people, many of whom are cooks, you know, about related topics. So that it's really, if I had to pick one medium, I would say the world of podcast and broadcast radio is really my favorite because it's a world of ideas. It's not just a world of cooking. For uh, folks who may not be familiar, may not be familiar with Milk Street Radio, uh, give me an elevator pitch of what the show is about. Milk Street Radio goes around the world to find people, ideas, places, techniques uh, about the world of food uh, to put cooking in context. So we'll speak to a Buddhist, you know, nun in South Korea who's also a cook. Uh, we'll talk to people about uh, uh, the best pizza in Japan. The guy trained in uh, Naples for uh, for two years. Uh, we'll talk about uh, fake meat, you know, the synthetic meat. Uh, everything that has to do with food and cooking and explore the culture around that 
uh, and what we can learn. So we'll talk about science sometimes uh, with our French correspondent in Paris. Uh, we'll talk about philosophy with Adam Gopnik, who's a staff writer for The New Yorker. Uh, for the lighter side, Dan Pashman of the Sporkful is a regular. Uh, we have a, a doctor on the show uh, who uh, talks about uh, the science of, of chocolate or bourbon. You know, is it healthy? Is it not? How these medical studies are done. Dr. Aaron Carroll uh, will interview cookbook authors, will interview all sorts of people, uh, detectives, forensic scientists on the show. So it's the world of food in the context brought to you every week. Uh, what have you learned from your guests and from doing the show? Well, we, that would take about five hours to answer that question. But I, I think the short answer is that uh, I've learned that people in different parts of the world think about cooking differently, it does, not just cook differently, but their approach to food and cooking is different. Um, you know, if you go to Oaxaca, you know, it's always about family. Um, if you go to uh, Vietnam, uh, it's sort of a Buddhist philosophy of the right way. There's a right way to do everything. In Japan, it's about being frugal. It's about how you, it's very physical, how you move in the kitchen, how you think about food, being grateful to the food producers. It's a, they have a real philosophy of colors. They have a philosophy of flavors. They have a philosophy of, of, of the gratefulness around food. So every place, food plays a different role in those cultures, similar, but different. Uh, and that's what's interesting to me is, is people, food is, is, is part of their lives in an integral way, but in a very different way if you go to one place to another. What do you want the listeners to, uh, the listeners of Milk Street Radio to walk away with uh, after listening to your show? I want them to be desperately passionate and hungry to get in the kitchen and get their hands dirty. I think uh, I just interviewed a, a Japanese uh, cook who just wrote a book, which is wonderful about Japanese cooking. And she talked about getting her hands on flour when she makes soba noodles, buckwheat flour. And it says that all of a sudden she's in a different universe. So I, I think the, the takeaway for me, we're trying to transport people into a different world through cooking. Uh, it's the last thing in the world you can do with your hands, right? Um, I grew up in a world where, you know, it was not a world of ideas. It was a world of haying and milking and um, you know, building and using your hands, repairing, fixing. Uh, we don't do that anymore. So cooking is the last thing you can do with your hands. I think cooking offers, uh, you know, I, I mean, not to overstate the case, but I mean, cooking almost can save the world. It's something you can do and get back to who you are and doing something for other people uh, and sort of get away from the current world we live in, which is not a bad idea. So I'm just trying to get people to, uh, to get in the kitchen and get their hands dirty and cook. I think that that simple act of cooking uh, is, is just a hugely rewarding thing for people, and they should do it every day. Uh, and, and that it's not, it's not uh, an inconvenience. It, it's, it's something everybody should do. That's the point of the show. What does it feel like to see Milk Street Radio be so well-received by audiences? Um, I don't know if it's that. I, I would say it's when people come up to you uh, and are, are really deeply grateful that they are now a better cook than they were before they started following what you're doing. Uh, and, and I've had people actually in tears sometimes because being a good cook is a very important thing to people. Uh, you feel good about yourself. You're doing something for other people. It's a way of, of communicating with people. 
So it's that transformation from being a bad cook to a good cook, or a good cook to a very good cook. And, and when people come up and thank you for that, I would say that's that's really the payoff for me. I mean, you know, how many downloads we get over a podcast, all that stuff is fine. Uh, but it's a conversation which can end up with people having, you know, enjoying their life more. Uh, and that's the that's the payoff for us is, is you get a lot of people who are, you know, th- their lives are a little bit better uh, because they're better cooks. Uh, that's terrific. Well, Christopher, we have come to a point in the show called Our Podcasters Picks, which I'm excited for because you mentioned that you're a big podcast fan. Uh, so this is when I asked the guests of the show to give me their top three favorite podcasts that they enjoy uh, that we should be listening to and describe them to the audience. So, Christopher, take it away. Uh, well, Fresh Air, everybody knows, but I, I just think uh, Terry Gross is the best interviewer. I mean, she's just a terrific interviewer, uh, and, and her range of topics is great. So you, you can go back every day for that show and you know, get someone from music, get someone from science, get somebody who's a, an author. Um, I, I love Away With Words, too, which uh, you know is a great show, and uh, it, it's about words. Uh, we actually they have been on our show once, but uh, they're kind of quirky people, and they talk about the origins of phrases and words, and uh, it's, just, it's just terrific. Um, I think Dan Carlin's hardcore history, uh, he can be a little windy sometimes, you know, he goes on and on. Uh, but you know, when he does, you know, 30 hours on the first world war or 25 hours on ancient Rome, uh, nobody does it better. He, he knows his stuff. He's read all the source materials. And, uh, if you love history, it's, it's just a terrific podcast. Before we get out of here, why do you podcast? Uh, because I can, <laughs> because it's there. Uh, look, talking to it, it, radio and podcasts are the most intimate medium. They're much more intimate than television or even movies. Um, it allows you to have a personal conversation with hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people uh, about a topic you care about. And that, that intimacy is what makes podcasting, I think, so terrific. Well, Christopher Kimball, it is such an honor to have you on OPP. I'm a big, big fan of your show. You've definitely inspired me to get more into the kitchen and to get my hands dirty and to chef up some, some wings and things for my boys uh, during the game. So I really appreciate you, man. Thank you so much for what you contribute to the podcasting space. I'm a big fan hey, of you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Have a great day, my man. Yeah, you too. Thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode of OPP and to our special guest, Christopher Kimball. Be sure to check out his amazing show on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. This episode was mixed by Joshua Coleman. Theme music for OPP was produced by Richie Quake. And are you down with OPP? If so, please be sure to leave us a five-star rating in the Apple app and let me know your favorite podcast in the review section. Lastly, before we get out of here, please be sure to check out my other show, Silent Giants, which highlights the superstars behind the scenes of popular culture. And you can find Silent Giants on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Pod bless y'all. Till next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.